Bonjour et bienvenue sur Gumpod. Je m'appelle Tyler. Et cette fois-ci, c'est Jake Sanson. Bonsoir. Do you speak French, Jake? I do, as it happens. Yeah, it's actually oh. my second language. Um, God, so... I'm so I'm so sorry. <laughs> you didn't so execute sorry. it badly. You didn't execute it badly, to be fair. <laughs> fair play to you. It was, I was pretty good. Yeah, I, I did it through uh, Google Translate. So I, th- I think it's what it's meant to be saying. What I was meant to be saying was, welcome to Goompod. Uh, delighted to welcome back returning guest, Jake Sanson. I think that's more or less what I what I typed into Google Translate. What anyway. is the French word for goon? I'm fascinated. Or is it... Does it just, just, goon. Ah, uh, goon. <laughs> yeah, that, that would make a lot of sense. Absolutely. Now... First of all, Jake, let's let, you know, let's have a little bit of small talk before we get into the episode proper. Uh, so you're cur- you've literally just dropped your bags. You're in a, a hotel room in Sweden. Are you, are you in Sweden to watch motor cars or what? Uh, to work with them. So uh, we've literally just checked in our bags to the hotel in Hasselholm, which is a wonderful little Swedish town. And we're here for the warm-up weekend to the European Karting Championships, which is known as Champions of the Future. And uh, yeah, flat out all day working in Sweden. And then I come to talk about the Goon Show. I can't think of a better way to end my day. It's a, it's a way of unwinding, isn't it? It certainly um, is. And obviously, as I, as I referred to before, you've been on before, you've been on previously. So you've already talked about your history with the Goon Show and growing up with it and mm. whatnot, or how you, how you came to discover it. So, you know, I needn't, uh, needn't go, we needn't go over that ground again, but mm. uh when we when we spoke last time, you did make mention of the fact that um, you're very fond of the episode that we're going to talk about today. And obviously, the fact that I was talking kind of French at the beginning may have been a bit of a giveaway. Um, but but what's what's the show that you um, you wanted to talk about today, Jake? So I've got a massive passion uh, for my favourite Goon Show episode of them all, uh, which is Tales of Montmartre. Uh, it is without a doubt, to me, the funniest episode they ever made of the goon show it's an episode that has everything it has a female guest star which was very rare for the goons Mm. uh it was set in a different location to normal uh with some great music some fantastic um play-by-play i'm fairly sure it's the only episode i can think of of the goon show that doesn't actually feature grip pipe thin and moriarty as a double act uh, in this one, they're actually rivals, although it's not actually Grit Pipe Thin. It's actually Paul Gauguin, played by Peter Sellers in the Grit Pipe Modica. So it, it's it, you don't actually hear any Grit Pipe Thin, which is very rare. Um, but this is one of those shows, uh, one of those episodes that has pretty much everything that you could want from a Goon Show episode. It has a little dash of everything. Um, and I just felt, you know, from start to finish, it really does exude what the goon show was good at and what it 
really was uh, brilliant at conveying at times. I think it's an absolute masterpiece. Well, I, w- I would agree. Um, just just on that, Grip Pipe and Moriarty, not in cahoots. You're right, by this point in the show's run, we're into series six. Almost inevitably, the two of them are, are, are teamed up you know, f- for devilment. <laughs> so it's quite interesting that Grip Pipe is playing Gogan, Moriarty is playing the villain of the piece, uh, and also doesn't have to change his accent. You know, he is uh, he's in his, his home territory. Yes, indeed. This is very much him being... Uh, himself although I love the fact that at one point in the episode he does mention you know I speak French now uh, and then goes into these ridiculous sound effects that may bear no relation whatsoever to French but uh, yeah again that's very goon show you know all the way through we've known that Moriarty is French and yet he has to make note of the fact that in this particular episode he speaks French now which is a it's a it's a forgotten gag that one It, it kind of passes by unnoticed but again, it was just that subtle little drop uh, that Spike Milligan was so good at throwing in haphazardly from time to time. Well, it passed me by unnoticed. So you've just pointed it out yeah, to me. So thank yeah. you for that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so Tales of Montmartre from Series 6, as I said, it's episode 18. It's uh, it's the last script writing credit for Eric Sykes. So it's yeah. it's it's down as, as Spike Milligan and Eric Sykes. Uh, although... Uh, they did remake China Story at the end of Series 6, which obviously Eric got a credit for. And it was broadcast the 17th of January, 1956. Um, just to sort of put it in historical context or cultural context, uh, that was literally a couple of days before Rebel Without a Cause was released in cinemas. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, and it was it was produced by Peter Eason. Now, the interesting thing, it's it was actually um, not as penultimate, but perhaps his... Um, is it anti-penultimate? Is that is that third from last? Is that the word? I, I guess it must it be. Yeah, anti-penultimate. Um, that'll do. Uh, I think it was it was certainly one of Peter Eaton's last uh, shows as producer. Mm. Uh, and on this particular episode, he was being shadowed by Pat Dixon. Yeah. And Pat Dixon went on to obviously uh, produce um, the the bulk of series seven, um, and and the last few of series six. Uh, and Pat, Pat Dixon had been the man that had pretty much helped them get on the radio in the first place, mm. um, which I'm sure at some point in the future, what, you know, once I'm really sort of, I'm not scraping the barrel, that sounds disrespectful, but, you know, when I'm maybe sort of running out of ideas for episodes, I might do a special on you know, the different producers. So I might do one on Pat Dixon, I might, mm. might do one on John Browell, might do one on Roy Spear, you know, who knows? You, you mentioned, obviously, it's it's... It's a very unique goon show in that it has an actual female of the opposite sex in the cast. Now, what, what could you tell me about Charlotte Mitchell, of anything? Well, Charlotte Mitchell was, uh, from what I gather, because obviously not a massive amount is written about uh, Charlotte Mitchell's career, but uh, she did various different acting credits at the time. But the main reason she ended up Uh, with the gig on The Goon Show was because she was having a bit of a moment uh, with Peter Sellers. She was actually having a a, a liaison with Peter Sellers at the time. So she ended up being actually in two episodes, uh, strangely enough. She was actually in Ye Bandit of Sherwood Forest two years earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, And then she ended up being in Tales of Montmartre as well. Um, But she was eventually married uh, to Philip Gard uh, in the end. So uh, the actor, of course, who was much more... Uh, notified in on stage and um, 
you know, they were together for only a few years. But Charlotte Mitchell's credits, I mean, she did quite a few things. She, the most famous thing she did, of course, was The Adventures of Black Beauty. She was uh, That's much, right. she yes. was much well known for uh, playing Amy Winthrop. She was the housekeeper. Uh, and she had also played a couple of other bits and pieces. I mean, she was, as well as a performer and actress, she was also a poet. And she used to be regularly um, uh, put on the BBC Radio 4 show Poetry Please. And um, one of her poems was actually chosen by Michael Williams and uh, Dame Judi Dench in their joint BBC Radio 4 uh, outlet, which was With Great Pleasure. Oh, right. uh, but, but she did all sorts of things. I mean, she was in Lady Godiva Rides Again. She was actually one of the minor characters in The Man in the White Suit back in 1951. Mm-hmm. Fabulous movie. Um, it is. She yeah. was in Dentist in the Chair with Norman Wisdom. Uh, she was in The French Lieutenant's Woman in 1981. Fabulous uh, movie, that one. She played Mrs. Tranter. But this is, for me, still my absolute favourite because it was so difficult to consider a woman could be thrown in amongst the goons and hold her own comically. Because, you know, these are... I do apologise. That was uh, Moriarty trespassly trying to get in on the record there. Um, (laughs) I do apologise. Charlotte Mitchell, bless her, um, she was trying basically to hold her own up against the goons at a time when, you know, men were the funny men on radio and women traditionally in that sort of period were the ones who set up the lines. But some Mm. of her lines in this were absolute riotous, some of the lines she came up with. Um, I mean, right in the first uh, scene that you see her in, uh, that you hear her in, sorry, you know, she says she posed for uh, for three weeks for Toulouse. Oh, how I posed. That's enough for today, Fifi. (laughs) The light's failing and my eyes are hurting. But Toulouse, when are you going to start painting me? <laughs> I say that's a jolly good idea. <laughs> it's, just, it's just, that's such a goon show line. You know, posing for three weeks and not actually doing any painting. Uh, that's such a goon show line. And she delivers it so brilliantly. To be fair, every line she pulls out is just comedy time in gold. She was so underrated and so undervalued. And well, she makes yeah. this episode for me. She absolutely makes this episode. Yeah, Charlotte Mitchell. So she, I think her, she's got, I think her two sons went into acting as well, I believe. That's absolutely right. Uh, yeah, Dominic and Christopher. They both went yeah. into acting as well. Yeah. You mentioned about the fact that she was having a bit of a, a thing with, with Sellers at the time. Uh, now, I was trying to get sort of clarification <laughs> of this. Allegedly, Where have you picked this up from? Allegedly is very much the, um, <laughs> it's still very, very much the uh, the official phrase. Uh, allegedly yeah. she was with Peter Sellers. Whether she actually was or not is very doubtful. Um, but it's one of those, you know, fabulous uh, sort of rumours that kind of were. I have no idea whether she actually did or not. But you can sort of hear where the chemistry might have come from between her and Peter. You can sort of hear something. But well, you uh, know what? He's got form for for these imaginary oh, romances. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, and, the, and, the, the, the string of girlfriends that Peter Sellers had over the years. I mean, it literally is like the who's who of ladies in the acting world. I mean, she was he was married to Anne Howe and Britt Eklund, for goodness sake. But yeah, uh, but I'm I'm th- I'm thinking because at the time because he he would have met her uh, in 1954 I think because he appeared in uh, the TV show and so to Bentley, uh, Muir and Norden scripted Dick Bentley vehicle, 
on television. Uh, it, in fact, it turned up color footage, I think. Yeah, color footage turned up. Silent color footage, um, which was taken on set of them recording. And so to Bentley, uh, turned up on uh, Talking Pictures TV on the, a program called Footage Detectives recently. Um, okay. It was a comedy show with, with Sellers, with Dick Bentley, as I say, Charlotte Mitchell, and uh, a number of others. Uh, Peter Jones as well in, in the cast. I gather it was it wasn't very good as a you know it, it, I mean it, there was a, a, a newspaper review from November 1954 and Soda Bentley continues to pursue an erratic course the latest show contained some good things notably the parody on animal vegetable and mineral in which the panel a thousand years hence were asked to identify a teapot taken from the Whitehall dig Murad Norden had written a lot of good stuff for that but the public inquiry into housing joke was too long and too laboured and was really only funny when Peter Sellers was on the screen in a devastating impersonation of Robert Reed. Mr. Sellers and Charlotte Mitchell do a very great deal to hold the show together. One gets very tired of the old man Bentley trying to be a golden haired lad joke. Okay, So, uh, so it looks like the, the, the standouts in that show were Sellers and Mitchell. Yeah. Um, by all accounts, from from the research that I did, she became friendly with all the goons. So I presume Sellers must have introduced her to to you know Spike and Harry. And yeah. as you say, she turns up in Your Bandit or Sherwood Forest. She recalled in an interview, um, she said that um, they would they would phone her up. The goons would phone her up uh, at all hours of the day and night. Sometimes on their own sometimes as a group um and she said uh, she said one time when they're touring in variety they rang her the three of them rang her up at two o'clock in the morning mm. and she ran to get the phone because you know and she was panicking because she expected it to be an emergency at that time of night and she passed out um she said they continued being daft and jolly on the other end of the line i lay on the floor with my head bashed in <laughs> right that, so, that sounds quite, like the boys, doesn't it? That definitely sounds like the boys. Yeah, and she was pregnant with her second child during the recording of uh, Tales of Montmartre. Uh -huh. So, yeah, um, and I just wanted, because it's a good excuse, because it's really the only goon show that has a female artiste in it who has a significant role, I mean, like you say, she was in Year Bandit at Sherwood Forest, but the role was not as as defined yeah. as her role in this show. I just wanted to have a little diversion on actual women who have appeared in the Goon Show over the, the course of the show's run. Because um, the it's list not a very long, long. It's not honest. a long list. No, it's <laughs> not. So we we had um, series one. They they did a pantomime on radio uh, called Cinderella, and that went out on Boxing Day. 1951, mm. and it uh, it featured Elizabeth Webb as Cinderella. And all I can find out about her, that she was a, a minor actress in Soprano. Series three, they did Robin Hood, another Christmas panto, yep. with Carol with Carol Carr, who'd, who'd appeared with them in Down Among the Z-Men. Uh, Milligan wasn't in that one. There was uh, Dick Emery was, was standing in. Uh, I think Milligan was in hospital at the time. Um, it was during that period in series three when, when Milligan was unwell and it was, it was mostly written by Jimmy Grafton and bits of the script were yanked out and recycled for Ye Bandit of Sherwood Forest ah, later on. There we go. 
and also in series three in one episode you get a very brief appearance by uh, an actress called alice powell who uh, was very well known at the time as mrs dale uh, on uh, mrs dale's diary and um, was later replaced by uh, somebody else whose name i forget <laughs> and then as you said we have, we have uh, charlotte mitchell in in two episodes and then the last female to appear in a goon show was in series eight and it was in the episode african incident which was later adapted for the lp bridge on the river y and the actress was uh, cecile chevreau who, who didn't do a, an awful lot on at least not on television or film she she did a lot of voice work i believe and she did the voice of buddha uh, in the TV series Monkey from the late 70s, which I vaguely remember. It's got a bit of a cult following. Do you know me? Everything is within this, and this is within everything. I am Tathagata Buddha. I always thought you were a fella. What a strange sight it must have been. Me in the dusky beauty, tangoing through the dense jungle on foot. I only had eyes for him, and he only had eyes for me. That explains why we fell over a cliff. <laughs> <laughs> um, and she did other bit parts, but she was, um, you know, she was radio and, and stage mainly. Uh, so that's it. You know, that is the sum total of women in The Goon Show. And I guess because Peter Sellers, you know, he can do Cynthia... For a certain amount of time, but yes. if it needs to be sustained, you know, they need, they need somebody who's going to be able to stay the course. It was yeah. kind of nice that they brought Charlotte in for this one, because I think it was it's very easy when you listen to The Goon Show to just get lost in a world of male fantasy. And for Charlotte to be thrown in to this world and to be expected to be funny and to do such a good job of it, it reminds you how funny women are. And, you know, the, the, the very nature of the comic timing of uh, and many a female performer you can actually kind of hear the sort of the rebellion of the female voice breaking through the tirade of british male humor in this episode you can kind of mm. hear shades of you know i i i've done a lot of study in comedy because i love comedy and you can almost hear a sort of a a nod to sort of where french and saunders eventually took their sketch shows you can hear a little bit of the sort of the brash comedy timing of victoria wood in this you can hear you know, the fabulous characterization of Catherine Tate and, you know, Nina Conti and all those fantastic, you know, modern performers. It's almost like this is like a window into the world of male humor and a sort of a challenge to it, a sort of a, a daring to, you know, be as funny as the men. And there's some fabulous moments. I mean, one of the highlights for me of this entire show is when they allow Charlotte to basically go on a tirade and run the show for 10 seconds. You know, she's she's emotional uh, and uh, she's obviously tearful. And Toulouse says, don't stop, darling. Tell me all. And she goes into 10 seconds of <laughs> French, which now being my second language, I decided I was going to try and figure out, you know, word for word what she says. I decided yeah. to give this a go. So she says, défense de cracher, défense de fumer, which means no spitting, no smoking. So they clearly took right. that from a. They clearly took that from a, a, a sort of a, a convenience sign in a cafe somewhere. Uh, yeah. Boulevard Saint Germain, so Radio France or Champs Elysees. So she's been listening to the main radio station in France on the Champs Elysees highway. Uh, la plume de ma tante galerie théâtre toujours toujours la tristesse. 
which is basically, you know, my aunt's pen is lost in the gallery of the theatre always. Um, <laughs> this is okay. this is a this is a French lesson at school gone wrong, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Toujours pour jadis toujours, which is sadness still always then and still now. Uh, and she finishes it finishes it up beautifully with Côté de la mer sur le pont d'Avignon, Père Auguste, uh, which is basically uh, on the on the coast on the bridge at Avignon, Father August. Uh, it, it means oh, nothing. It you, means you, nothing at all. No. Nothing at all. There's no significance to this whatsoever. Do you know what I was, I was hoping you were going to say? That she, at mm. one point, she says, my my hovercraft is full of eels. <laughs> it's very, very similar style of humour, isn't it? it mm. It's very much in the same sort of line. Um, but yeah, it, it, and, and, and the beautiful payoff from uh, Neddy, of course, is gad, if I could only speak French. And the brilliant, the brilliant line of that, of course, is that it doesn't make any difference whatsoever. You know that she's emotional. It makes no difference whatsoever. But it's just, it's one of those fabulous sort of like, you know, the tea house of the August moon where he knocks 6,000 times and then the payoff finally arrives. It, it's, yes. it's that setup of a great joke that takes forever. And yet you're still there hanging on knowing that the punchline is going to be funny, despite knowing exactly what the punchline <laughs> is going to be. So yeah. it's just fabulous. It, it, it's so beautifully timed. There are so many things within this particular episode that I'm absolutely head over heels in love with. The banter from Eccles when he finally appears in the second act. It, it, it's wonderful. Because obviously they've set him up very early in the show and you do start to wonder, is this going to be a goon show without Eccles, really? Because he appears briefly at the start. You know, have you yeah. guessed where the play is set? No. Uh, and finally... <laughs> He, you know, he comes back later. There's, there's been a fight where we think it's Toulouse and Paul Gauguin. And uh, Toulouse says, well, what have you got to say for yourself? Yugoslavia. <laughs> I've been thinking about that music you played at the beginning. And I say this story takes place in Yugoslavia. <laughs> no, no. Try again. Now get out, Eccles. Oh, darling, darling, look. You have cut yourself fighting. Let me kiss away those broken bones. There. Is that better? Fine, fine, fine. <laughs> Get out, Jekyll! Get out, Jekyll! Get out! Get out! Oh, now, darling, we are alone. Yeah, darling. Let me in, Eccles! Let me in, Eccles! Shut up! Shut up! Now, get out, you little idiot. <sighs> I'm sorry about that interruption, darling. That's okay, darling. Get out! <laughs> They've basically lifted that from 1985. Oh, they definitely have. It's it's the, yeah. it's a continuation of exactly the same routine as in 1985, <laughs> but it, it's just so beautifully orchestrated. Um, but th 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 when you look through this particular goon show, there's so many fantastic one-liners. So when Bloodknock first appears, you know, he says, "How many of you live here?" And Toulouse says, "Let me see. There's my wife, Paul Gauguin. So your wife is Paul Gauguin." <laughs> it's just, yes. it's, oh, the timing of it. It's just wonderful. Oh, when he, he sees Fifi and starts kissing her, it's like, I think I'll take my pack off for a few moments. You know, excuse me. It's like, how dare you talk while I'm kissing your wife? Who do you think you are? <laughs> so, oh. Well, I, I my, my favorite line, I think for me, Harry is the standout performer. In oh, this yeah. particular episode. And and when when Fifi, like you, you referred to Fifi being upset earlier uh, and, and she explains to to Neddy, her husband, 
by the way, yes. Yes. that 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 her lover Paul Gauguin um, was unfaithful, uh, didn't come home last night. Yes, see, he says I'll thrash it within an inch of his life. He can't do that to a wife of mine. <laughs> <laughs> he's so innocent all the way through this. You know, he's clearly only read about marriages in books. He doesn't know exactly how they're supposed to work. So, yeah. he's, you know, he's right from the first moment, you know, where they're kissing. And he's like, this is a Fifi, Fifi, Fifi. This is, um, and they obviously go to the next room and he has to ring her to tell her. He has to ring her on the telephone. I just wanted to say his name is Paul Gauguin. <laughs> oh, it's fabulous. But you, you can hear Peter Sellers in his element you know, in the scenes with Fifi. He's there, you know, at the side of the auditorium. Neddy, naughty Neddy. <laughs> it's, it's fabulous. And the, the sort of the, the, you know, the rap, you know, the absolute flagrant, uh, unapologetic <laughs> cheating between the two of them. It's just so brilliantly goon show. It's like, this is absolutely fine. Don't worry. He knows it's going on. It's happening right under his nose. We're not lying to him. So he's just, that's how he's decided to take it. Um, but no, th- there's some fascinating uh, performances. One of the things I did know, I've got in my notes here about Tales of Montmartre is this episode, one of the reasons I like it so much, uh, one of the many reasons, this actually has, in my opinion, the best Max Geldre performance and the best Ray Ellington performance in the show's history. Both of them together pulled out what I feel was the best ever performance. So Max Geldre playing Jeepers Creepers I genuinely think that was him at his peak. I think, you know, when you, you know when one musician has just got one song where they are absolutely on it and there's not a missed note, there's not a dropped moment, the soul comes through. And, you know, it, it changes pitch, it changes key, it changes time sequence at various points. And Max is right there. Uh, and when you listen to him perform, you're like, my goodness, he actually was seriously, seriously talented. And, you know, the harmonica is not really an instrument in the modern era that people give anybody any credit for. But considering this was, you know, just a few years after Music Hall, Max Geldre really was probably the best harmonica player in the world in history. He really, really was that talented. And the way he just loses himself in the performance of Jeepers Creepers in this particular show, it's effortless. It looks just effortless and it sounds effortless and you can lose yourself in the music. I don't know, because I'm there, I sign up for Goon Show, as many people do for the comedy. I have a tendency, occasionally, when I'm impatient and I want the jokes, I whiz through Max's performance occasionally, and I whiz through Ray Ellington's performance occasionally, just because I want the jokes. But in this one, I'm there for the whole of Jeepers Creepers, for the first of the last notes. It's wonderful. He is just absolutely on his A-game. Yeah, you mentioned uh, Ray Ellington. Yeah, you've got Eccles crops up in the middle of Ray's number. Oh, that was, yeah, this is one of the things I loved about this particular number. One Alone, a great, great song, which has been recorded by so many artists. But Ray Ellington's yeah. version, right from the first line, you hear that one of them's decided to just, you know, goose him on the very first line. And uh, you can hear a raspberry in the background and Ray has to, you know, giggle along. And then, yeah, right in the <laughs> middle of the have a good time sequence, uh, come to my tent. Uh, just that's a pure goon show moment and they didn't do that enough i think the only time when they ever got as silly as that 
in quite the same way during one of Raylington's numbers, or at least one that comes to mind immediately, is when uh, Raylington sang Pink Champagne in The Fear of Wages. Yeah. And yeah, that was yeah. another classic moment where he couldn't stop laughing. He's still in mid-flow trying desperately to sing and he just keeps giggling, Ray Ellington. It's fabulous. I think that's the only show in BBC Radio where that would have been acceptable to leave that version of the song in. I don't think any others, like if you'd have looked at like the Fraser Hayes 4 in Round the Horn, if they'd have started giggling in the middle, they'd go, no, go back, go do it again, do it again. <laughs> yeah. But in The Goon Show, you're allowed these things, these things are allowed to stand yeah, I, I, and there's a number of occasions. I, I, I know that Minnie has sung along, uh, tucked to yes. toe along to a few. Yeah, um, for some reason, I've got I've got Rommel's Treasure in my head as an episode where there's a there's an intervention by a Goon <laughs> Show character in one of the songs. Um, I just wanted to just give a little sort of pricey or yep. summary of of. I mean, there's there's not really a plot, is there? There never really is, but I'd like to kind of just. Vague. Just, 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 just in case people haven't heard this particular episode, okay. Mm. Um, the goons take a trip across the Channel to Paris. It's eighteen eighty, and renowned painter and uh, newlywed Neddy Toulouse Lautrec of Leeds. <laughs> <laughs> he gets caught up in a menage a trois uh, as Fifi, his wife, sets her cap at his good friend Paul Gridpipe Gauguin. And, and she's pretty much after every other pair of trousers yes. as well in this drama. Uh, and we have Firewood Purveyor Moriarty desperate for Neddy's 20-foot easel. Um, and there's there's jewels aplenty, and it's a masterpiece of Gallic goonery. Yes, I mean, um, we must fight another duel three paces and then fire. And you hear the shots. Oh, no, you're satisfied. So where were they shooting? Where were they shooting? Because they clearly weren't shooting at each other at any point. (laughs) (laughs) Straight up in the air, one presumes. Can you explain the 20-foot easel conceit? Because it's so roundabout. It is a very bizarre part of the plot. So essentially, this is, again, a very goon show setup. So essentially, uh, the whole reason that he has a 20-foot easel, partly to paint, obviously, but the other reason he has a 20-foot easel, uh, Neddy, is that... He wants to have something tall not to stand by so that he can look taller Mm. uh, standing next to something else. And Mm. for once, the voice of reason, when did this ever happen? For once, the voice of reason, Henry Crun, has to ask the question we're all thinking, you know, why do you want a 20-foot easel? I want it to make people think I'm tall. It's like, well, if you're going to stand by a 20-foot easel, it'll make you look even shorter. That's just it. I'm not going to stand by it. I'm going to stand somewhere else. I'm not a fool, you know. And so Henry Crunk comes back and says, if you're not going to stand near it, why buy it? And again, total logic of the goon show. It's like, I've got to buy it so as to have something tall not to stand by. There's no good not standing next to something tall that's not there. It's just... And then finally, the only other hole, the only other loophole that we've identified here, supposing someone comes in unexpectedly when you're standing near it, Oh, then I should deny every word of it and stand on the ladder. Now, this is exactly the same kind of writing as you get with what time is it, Eccles? Just a minute. I've got it written down on a piece of paper. It's exactly the same logic. Mm. Uh, and I, I, that's I think true. That's, the, that's the other reason I like this sequence a lot is because, yeah, essentially it's exactly the same sort of writing from exactly the same pen. But yeah, the, the, yeah. this whole 20-foot easel thing, uh, Moriarty wants the 20-foot easel for firewood. Uh, and he's willing to make him an offer, but, you know, Toulouse doesn't want him uh, 
to he's not going to put the ease of a sale but obviously as far as moriarty is concerned it would make 50 bundles of french type firewood uh, not french firewood french type firewood um <laughs> again that's very moriarty um there is there is a distinction there is a distinction and eventually he's he realizes that gogan could paint a portrait of the 25th easel and then he could take the actual easel for firewood, leaving the painting in its place. And then he will never know the difference, which is, again, very goon show. Um, so as far as Moriarty is concerned, that's all, Guga, uh, that's all Gauguin is doing. He's painting a portrait of the 25th easel so he can do the swap. Uh, but Fifi distracts him. So essentially now he has to try and get Bloodknock to offer a higher price in Act 3. Uh, and that's where things get you know very very intense and we finally get the cameo and it is a cameo in this particular episode from blue bottle he almost misses the show altogether he almost misses being in the show but uh just as blood knock needs to get across town quickly in comes blue bottle as a cab driver a horse and cart driver uh, and again that has another one of my favorite goon show play-by-plays of all time Drive me to the studio of Toulouse Trek and step on it. Step on what, Captain? <laughs> Go fast, hurry! I haven't got a horse. <laughs> oh, I know. I will pull the carriage myself. Gets in shaft, puts on harness. Sapristi cardboard harness, hurry, man! Well, you go on ahead and I'll catch you up. <laughs> Do you know the address? No, I'll follow you. Sapristi, I don't know the address. Well, then you better follow me. Right. <laughs> Uh, yeah which is a lie by the way because moriarty's already been round to, yes he to does Nettie's know the guess. address yes he, he does yeah. so um it's blue bottle in, in this you're probably gonna think i'm a filthy heathen for saying this but oh, really? uh um i don't think blue bottle's very good in this episode i mean obviously there's he, he turns up right at the end right at the end um and he's underage I hasten to add, yes. but he turns that right. But but the bits with Moriarty that that culminates with him saying "you filthy swine" or whatever, it's a bit of a bit of a damp squib. I feel um, it just doesn't get a good a, a decent uh, shake of the old stick. He gets um, two really good laughs, I suppose, um, which are very blue bottle right at the fra- right at the beginning. It's enter French bottle bleu, voila, cracks whip, bang, oh mon roll. That's a that's a pretty that's a pretty good blue bottle moment, um, and the other one after that I suppose is um, you know drive me to the studio of Toulouse Lautrec and step on it, step on what Captain? It's, just, it's very blue bottle. It's very blue bottle. And that's about as good as it gets for him, um, which is a shame really. I mean he gets his your rot you rotten swine moment when he obviously yeah. gets the explosion, which is it's it's kind of like. If you're crafting together an episode of The Goon Show, you have to remember that Blue Bottle is in it. You have to remember that he gets deaded at the end of his scene uh, and he's a little bit childish. So it was all kind of crafted together. It was almost like they crowbarred him into the episode. But he does ultimately get the last laugh when, you know, Fifi has obviously no longer got Paul Gauguin to run off with because, you know, spoilers, but he's eventually shot, uh, as is Moriarty. Uh, mm. And Fifi finally confesses there is someone else who and the door opens and uh, there is Blue Bottle, uh, which is just, you know, a, a fabulous and a very stereotypical ending to a goon show. You run and swine, Blue Bottle, and out you go. It, it's just it, it was well crafted because you kind of figured out, oh, is that all you're going to get from Blue Bottle all episode? And then he just suddenly gets the last laugh. Yeah. Um, just a slight digression, mm. just because I like to do digressions in this show. Okay. Um, 
Toulouse Lautrec, obviously Neddy is playing a version, a comedy version of Toulouse Lautrec. Mm. Now he has got to be the actual Toulouse Lautrec has got to be um, the definitive comedy artist in the sense that he's often been parodied in comedy over the years, including by Peter Sellers in a Pink Panther film. Do you know much about Toulouse Lautrec? Well, I know vaguely about him uh, in the various guises of the story of the tragedy Moulin Rouge. And I've actually been mm. to this area of uh, Paris before. I've actually been to Montmartre. So okay. obviously having listened to Tales of Montmartre as a nine-year-old and then eventually watched Moulin Rouge and the fabulous portrayal of Toulouse-Lautrec by John Leguizamo, I do wonder, actually, the way he portrays Toulouse-Lautrec for a fair part of Moulin Rouge. I do sometimes wonder... Did he manage to put, <laughs> did he manage to find a copy of the Goon Show because there are some moments in that particular movie that are very Neddy Seagoon, very very close uh, <laughs> approximation. That's a reach. It's well, well it, it's a reach. But if you watch that movie again and watch his portrayal of Toulouse Lautrec, he could easily have fit into any Goon Show without any hesitation at all. He would have fit as a sub character in the Goon Show, and no one would have noticed the difference. Um, but yeah, so he was a very tragic character uh, to these Lautrec. He was a very odd uh, sort of uh, personality. Um, he obviously had uh, a lot of affections for, you know, the various uh, ladies of the bordello back in the day. Uh, a very yes. provocative 19th century uh, caricaturist, draftsman, illustrator. Uh, painter, printmaker, all sorts of incredible things. But of course, he was very short in general. He had undersized legs. Um, uh, he broke both his legs in his adolescence. And basically, there was an unknown medical condition he had, which complicated it. But yeah, he was absolutely in amongst the post-impressionists, you know, with Van Gogh, Gauguin, Surat, uh, Paul Cezanne. He was very much in that whole sort of world. But his affinity for the brothels and the prostitutes, obviously... They were the subject matter for matter for pretty much all of his major works. Uh, you know, he met and became friends with Oscar Wilde in the yes. late 1890s. He yeah. was a very vocal supporter of him and uh, actually tried to um, uh, throw his support behind uh, Oscar Wilde's imprisonment. And uh, he oh, actually Redding painted. Jail. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. He painted Oscar Wilde, of course. Mm. Um, and that's uh, one of his most famous artworks. A lot of what he did from memory, because I'll, I'll come on to this in a minute, and I don't want to, I don't want to get off the goons for too long, but I just, mm. it, it interests me because a lot of what he did, I think, was um, essentially advertisements um, for for shows. Yeah. He would, th there would be uh, bill posters for uh, shows and um, plays and all the all the rest of it, uh, and, and uh, died very young. And, and that's possibly why he's still remembered today, because it seems mm. to be the, the, the artists that die young, tragically, yeah. seem to be the ones that get remembered. Um, I, I studied, <clears throat> when I would have been listening to Tales of Montmartre in my teens, I was, I was at school, I was studying art history, um, and including Gauguin. In fact, I remember we spent quite a lot of time studying Gauguin. Not that I particularly like his work, Mm. Um, but I remember at the time I was living with, <laughs> I was living with my uncle and we're talking the early 90s here and I had a book of Gauguin's paintings in the house oh wow I remember my uncle sort of thumbing through the book with a raised lip you know what I mean and a kind mm. of a sneer as as was his want 
Um, and he was looking at these rather simplistic paintings of uh, mainly d dusky Tahitian ladies in states of undress, <laughs> you know. Um, yes. And I just remember, <laughs> remember him saying, couldn't he just paint some horses? <laughs> because, that, because, you know, that, that is very nearly a, a blood knot line or a Moriarty <laughs> line. Because, no, he said, yeah, I like horses because my, my uncle was into animals in a big way and he had pictures. Um, I think his, his favourite artist was George Stubbs, who I think all George Stubbs oh, painted right. was horses. And, uh, I, and at one point, I, I remember the pretentious little nerk that I was, I remember saying to him, pointing at one of the one of the prints that he had on the wall of, it might have been George Stubb, Stubbs or um, Jericho painting of um, a horse mm. race where all four legs of a, of the horses are off the ground. Right. And I remember I remember uh, <clears throat> very loftily informing my uncle that uh, that's not how horses actually gallop. <laughs> um, and I went hungry that night. Um, <laughs> as, as indeed you deserve to. As indeed you deserve to. Oh, uh, but so, sorry, we, we have got off the subject. Um, but um, th th there's, a, there's a point in this episode where Charlotte Mitchell's really in character. And by that, I mean the first time that... So, so when she first meets Paul, I think, and, and they start uh, kissing... Mm. And, and like you say, Nadia is trying to attract her attention. And in the <laughs> end, he has to actually leave, physically leave the house and phone the yes. house. <clears throat> and she answers the phone, or at least you hear the phone being answered. But you can still, you, even though the phone has been answered, you still hear the smooching yes, for, for, for a few more seconds. And then she kind of, it's like she, with great reluctance, goes, hello? Yes. Uh, do you know what I mean? It's not, you, you would have expected, you know, the moment that phone uh, is is lifted off the receiver. She'd be like, "Hello," but no, no. There's, you know, she's really, she's really uh, reluctant to break the moment. She wants the moment to carry yeah. on. Fifi, uh, Fifi, <clears throat> this is um. Hello. I just wanted to say his name is Paul Gauguin. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Yes. Yeah, in her, in her um, ever so slightly Michelle from the Resistance voice. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Seekum's been on the crack pipe ahead of the recording, I think, or something, because he's really he's got um, some energy, hasn't he? Yeah, he's he's really let loose because you've got the you've got the bit where he <clears throat> he first gets uh, kissed by Fifi, and there's that. Oh, he's scream. absolutely on it. That uh, that. That Looney Tunes, that Sylvester the Cat Looney yeah. Tunes reaction. wow, this really could be a cartoon show if you wanted to go there and it would totally work. Um, so it's, yeah, that, that sound effect, without a shadow of a doubt, if you could have that as a, a ringtone for your phone to get a text message in, <laughs> I'd be doing it. And people would look at me, what on earth are you doing? Listen to The Goon Show, trust me, it's, it, it's worth it. But yeah, all the way through, you know, Neddy is pretty, he's hard done by. He wants to have this 
romance. He's been waiting several series to have a decent romance. And he's finally got the opportunity to have one with Fifi. But because it's an actual woman on the actual goon show and she's actually quite beautiful. You know, yeah. Moriarty wants a piece of it. Gauguin wants a piece of it. Bloodnock wants a piece of it. Even Eccles wants a piece of it. Uh, and yeah. of course, so does Blue Bottle. So they all want their wicked way. I think I think the only I think the only male character in this drama that doesn't get a bit <laughs> with Fifi is Crun. Yeah, and he's and, only in it for about seven point eight seconds, roughly. Well, yeah, but you say he's at the he's there at the beginning, and he's he quite he, he seems quite sensible and and uh, yeah, unaccountably, and, and also at the end he's quite he's quite savvy because he re- he recognizes that. Um, a yeah. painting by Paul Gauguin is going to be more valuable when he's dead. Mm. Well, I suppose you do wonder, you know, if the if the plot of this is set in 1880, is this when Henry Crun is fairly compostmentous then? And oh, obviously, yeah. as we get oh, further yeah. into his life, he's obviously yeah. lost the plot and, you know, he'll <laughs> get himself trapped behind rosewood pianos for hours on end. You know, that's the kind <laughs> yeah. of lifestyle he has when he's old and eccentric. Um but yeah, maybe this is like the early days of Henry Crun. You know, he's actually a very well-to-do businessman and he's not quite so insane. Um, but clearly, Minnie Bannister is uh, still oh, absolutely bonkers. Uh, the other thing, um, I think this is the last ever goon show to have the uh, goon gallop theme tune at the end. Yes, I think you're right. Because it, it it ends and then the following week is the jet propelled guided Nafi and that is the 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 Yugo show theme. It, it, it's kind of like a a close of one chapter of the goons almost and into sort of the it's almost like you know in modern terms I can only sense it's like the slight changes to the closing and opening sequences of Doctor Who when there's been a regeneration. It yeah. kind of almost ends up being, you know, this is the Goon Show. It's not going to completely die out. We're just going to evolve it a little bit. We're going to tweak a few things and then change a, little, a couple of things around. Uh, but new, uh, new producer coming up and yes, uh, obviously Eric departs the scene. Um, I miss Eric Sykes's writing in the latest mm. series. I really do. Because he had that fabulous ability, Eric Sykes, to construct Eccles-style humour. He was very, very good at the Eccles style humour. So some of the best writing um, of Eccles actually comes from the episodes written by Eric Sykes with Spike. And, you know, it, it's clear yeah, that yeah. by that point, yeah. uh, Eric and Spike had obviously crossed swords one too many times because obviously he was a very emotional man at the time when he was working with Eric Sykes. Eric was very tolerant of Spike. But there's a lot of Eric Sykes that's missing in the later goons that you do notice if you're looking for it. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. There's series five in which, you know, Eric and Spike wrote the bulk of together mm. or I, I could never quite tell, you know, it wasn't the case that Eric wrote one week, Spike wrote the following week and they just shared the credit, the writing credit. I'm not quite sure how it worked. Um, it's a good, it's a good point. I wouldn't be surprised if it was a little bit of that. Yes. We're writing it together, but Spike didn't show up this week. So I did it. It wouldn't yeah, surprise I mean, me at it, all. But but there, there there does there, I've said this many times there does seem to be there does tend to be a beginning middle, and an end, mm. to the Eric and Spike scripts in series five series six. Um, so who was it said? I can't remember who it was said that um, the later shows there's just a middle, 
<laughs> yes, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. There's just a middle. There's no beginning. There's no end. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. One thing I wanted to bring up as well. So this show goes out middle of January, mm. 1956. At the same time, uh, the case of the Muckety's Battle Horn was released. Oh, right. Okay. Okay. Have you seen that? Have you? I haven't case. actually seen it, but I have heard a lot about it. Okay, I just want to do just talk a little bit about it. At some point, we'll probably do a show on it. I'm sure, mm. but I just it's just um just quite an interesting story because it was it came about because uh, and, and we get, we we return once again to Robin Hood because uh, there was the television very popular television series, The Adventures of Robin Hood, uh, with was it Richard Green as Robin Hood, I think, mm. and. A guy who worked on that show was a guy called Michael Dealey. And Michael Dealey um, was an editor, I think, and on, on Robin Hood. And his editing partner was a guy called Harry Booth. Mm. And they decided that they wanted to make films. And so they managed to stump up the money to produce a short film with Sellers and Milligan, which was mm. the case of the Monkey's Battle One. Um, Harry Seacom, the, the story is that Harry was too expensive, um, which I can't believe, but I, I gather he, he just wasn't available for whatever reason. So Dick Emery stepped into the breach and, mm. and did a, did, you know, did an admirable job. Uh, so, so they produced this short film. It was, it, it was, the idea was that it was possibly even going to be the first of a series of, of television specials. Mm. Um, and they were thinking of selling it to the Americans, trying to sell it to the Americans. But they they did some test screenings of, of the Muckety's Battlehorn and to, to some Americans who they didn't find it funny. Mm. So they just abandoned that idea, and they chopped and changed the the length. They originally I think it was about forty minutes in length, and then they chopped it down to twenty five minutes or something, and then they re-edited it back to mm. thirty five minutes. So it's a lot of sort of editing going on here and it was it was filmed at um a place called merton park studios uh and yeah it was it 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 was very well received it was a short film which you know played before the main feature it would later go on to be the supporting feature for marty python and the holy grail Ah. in in the 70s yeah this is where Um, i of course uh discovered of it, I haven't actually seen it, but I, this is where I have heard of its existence. Right. Well, so so as I say, that was the first endeavour by this this partnership of Michael Dealey and, and Harry Booth. Now, Dealey, just very very briefly, <laughs> I just want to mention this because De- Dealey went on to he was involved with films. The produ- he was a producer mainly in later years, and he was involved with the production of a film which I I love very much and which. I'm actually going to be um, appearing as a guest on a wonderful podcast called Real Britannia, talking about this film, which is Robbery from 1967, oh, right. which is a, a Stanley Baker crime caper or crime film based on the Great Train robbery. Oh, it's really, really good. Cool. Um, and then Dealey went on to be involved with films, great films like Don't Look Now, The Wicker Man. Mm. And I think he was also involved, I want to say, with The Deer Hunter and Blade Runner. But... <laughs> The reason I want to mention Dealey is that he made some real cheap, real sort of knock them out quickly features in mm. the early 60s. 
including a film called Sandy the Reluctant Nudist in 1963. <laughs> <laughs> and what I love the fact, the fact that, because he was on a shoestring budget here, Michael Dealey, his girlfriend wrote the script um, and his mother did continuity as if a film called Sandy the Reluctant Nudist of needed continuity. Of course she did. Of course she did. <laughs> oh, um, different times, different times. Absolutely. So, yeah, so I just wanted to... Oh, one other quick thing about Muckinese Badhorn, by the way. Mm. I read in Roger Lewis's doorstop of a book, The Life and Death of Peter Sellers, mm. that in the film Young Frankenstein, Marty Feldman's character, mm. uh, e, uh, not Igor, Igor, is seen at one point um, atop the castle blowing this 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 strange musical instrument and roger lewis maintains that it is actually the actual muckanese battle horn as seen in the 1956 short film now um i've looked for verif you know, verification of this i i even got to the stage where i emailed roger lewis and asked him i said you know where did you where did you find out about that or where did that information come from and he emailed me back and he said it was 30 years ago for christ's sake Mm. <laughs> How am I supposed to remember? <laughs> so I don't know whether that was the Muckinese Battle Horn. I'd like to think it was. It probably wasn't. But mm. um, but anyway, anyway, I'm sorry for the for the digression. No, no, no. But I think I think I think I think we've made a a, a decent fist of talking about. Um, we certainly have. Tales of my March. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, it's one of those weird episodes that kind of falls through the cracks if you're not careful, um, because as you say, there isn't much of a plot. Uh, Henry Crun is fairly compost mentes. Blue Bottle barely gets a mention. Uh, Eccles is crowbarred into the middle of the story. Um, you know, there is no grit pipe thin. Uh, Moriarty is not in cahoots with Peter Sellers' main character, Paul Gauguin, at any point. Charlotte Mitchell is able to hold her own. There's a lot mm -hmm. of sex, essentially. There's a lot of violence. There's <laughs> sex and violence on Radio 4, um, on the World Service. Uh, but it is up there. Home service. I, 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 yeah, absolutely. I do think that this this has a sort of a, a beauty to it. You know, this is one of the last great pieces of uh, Radio 4 comedy where you could get away with mocking the French and they would never find out about <laughs> it. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it, was, it was fabulously portrayed. It was really well blended in with real history which is what i like about it they, they do actually take you know characters from reality of that period and kind of weave the story into it so it was clear they knew their history and they were willing to you know delve into it and it almost kind of seems to me as like when you do things like that when the when the goons do kind of go into you know these characters actually these it's almost a nod to them it's almost a nod to the great artists such as Paul Gauguin and Cezanne and, you know, Toulouse-Lautrec, who were kind of tortured in a crazy world that had they been in France in 1880, they probably would have fit into. I've got a feeling that the goons would have actually gelled in that sort of, you know, Baroque 1880s Parisian Montmartre world. I think they would have excelled in it. I think they would have been lauded as comic geniuses uh, for time immemorial. I think they, they would have been embraced uh, by the sort of the culture. I know that you're yeah. going to be doing a, a sort of a top 20 uh, goon shows, uh, potentially. You're going to go and look- In the future, it, yes. In the future, mm -hmm. which I think is a fabulous idea. I somehow have a feeling that when all of your fantastic listeners go through their list of goon shows, I'm not entirely sure this one would make the list. I don't think it would. Uh, and I can see it on face value. You know, when you look at some of the other fabulous goon shows that are there, 
like Napoleon's Piano, uh, the Greenslade story, which is my second favourite Goon Show episode of all time with him and John yeah. Snag. I think the, the poetry of their play-by-play in that one is absolutely masterful. The Fear of Wages, which has to be in there because it was Spike's favourite. Um, the Dreaded Batter Pudding Hurler of Bexhill on Sea, which for me is still the ultimate Goon Show title of any Goon Show ever. You know, the mm. dreaded batter pudding hurler of Bexhill on Sea. It's just a beautiful mm. uh, Goon Show moment. There are so many episodes that you will look through on face value and go, this is just, you know, this is so much better. I don't think Tales of Mamacha would ultimately make the fans top 20. I don't think it would. But for me, so. it's it's always going to be my favourite. Uh, the reason for that is because, you know, I've I've always had a bit of a thing for funny women. I really do find, you know, funny women to be a bit of an aphrodisiac, as I'm sure many men do. And this was, for me, the first ever portrayal I had ever been given of a woman who was genuinely funny on her own without a man having to make sure she was funny. You know, she could hold her (laughs) own against them. Uh, It was important that she was in the plot and she gave as good as she got. You know, some of her lines in this, you know, there was definitely a comedian fighting to break three when when you know Toulouse and Gauguin are having their epic fight you know she'll go to an aside and go how they fought they were still at it when I came back from the pictures <laughs> I could not see who was winning but I knew it was one of them that's just a brilliant brilliant line and again yeah. almost forgotten um it just kind of passes by this isn't a, ultimately the the finest goon show of all time but I think it's important in the fact that it was Eric Sykes's last it was the last for Peter Eaton. It kind of closes one of the chapters of The Goon Show. It has its place. And it does kind of stand the test of time. There are things that are not quite right with it. But in terms of putting together a perfect Goon Show, all of the ingredients are there. It's just an acquired taste of a recipe. So, Jake, thank you so much again for, for joining me. And, and um, if, if people want to check you out on Twitter or social media, where should they look? So on Twitter, they can find me at Jake Sanson on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. Yes, I've gone to the digital age. Uh, you can find me on Jake Sanson Official. And uh, yes, there will probably be a few Goon Show references on TikTok. Yes, I'm going to bring Goon Show to TikTok, folks. I'll find a way. I'll crowbar it in there. All these kids have no idea what the Goon Show is, but I shall find a way. They I'm not will sure get to what... know of it. They will get to know of I'm it. Not, I'm not sure what TikTok tick top tech is <laughs> <laughs> you shall find out you shall find out i will introduce the world to the goon show through the power of tiktok i will make it i am 83 years old um, <laughs> uh, uh, jake, jake thank, thank you and as i say and uh, we'll have you on again it's been an absolute pleasure i would love to thank you <laughs>